0: ted audio collective it's the most wonderful time of the year and that means it's officially time to kickstart your holiday shopping uncommon goods is here to make your holidays stress-free by scouring the globe for the most remarkable gifts for everyone on your list whether you're shopping for mom, dad, teenagers, in-laws, or your best friends, Uncommon Goods knows exactly what they want. Some of my favorites are the personalized word search blanket, a cozy, soft cotton throw secretly filled with the names and birth dates of my loved ones, and my really unique stemless wine glasses featuring the complete text of Maya Angelou's stunning poem, Phenomenal Woman. To get 15% off your next gift, go to uncommongoods.com designmatters. That's uncommongoods.com slash designmatters for 15% off. Don't miss out on this limited time offer. Uncommon Goods. We're all out of the ordinary. Thank you to Target for sponsoring this episode.
1: Obviously, You shouldn't say that to an eight-year-old. It was a defining moment in my life. But I'd be lying if I said it was all hardship. It was very sad, very wounding, but in a way, it was also freeing. From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 18 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, Isaac Fitzgerald talks about growing up poor and about his coming-of-age memoir. I was like, oh yeah, but they're jerks. They're rich. Like I had this real class chip on my shoulder.
0: Hey, listener a quick favor we are conducting an audience survey and we'd be really grateful if you could take just a few minutes to respond. please visit survey.prx.org/design matters to take the survey today that's survey.prx.org/design matters Thanks As longtime listeners know, I do a lot of research for this podcast. I go deep on internet searches. I read, listen, and transcribe other interviews. I try and unearth forgotten early work. I don't call my guests friends or parents or former teachers, but by the time I interview someone, I feel like I know their friends and parents and former teachers. Research is something I love most about creating this podcast almost as much as the actual interview. This week, my guest made it a little bit easier for me. <laughs> That's because much of Isaac Fitzgerald's life is already revealed in his New York Times bestselling book, Dirtbag, Massachusetts, A Confessional. Here, we are privy to an extremely unusual origin story. There is poverty and privilege. There is a boatload of booze, a lot of drugs, and some porn. This is all shared with Isaac's sure-handed prose and unflinching self-awareness. Dirtbag Massachusetts came out last year in hardcover, and the brand new paperback was just published. Isaac Fitzgerald, welcome to Design Matters.
1: Debbie, thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. I'm such a big fan of the podcast and of you.
0: Thank you. Now, Isaac, is it true that you consider Terminator 2 to be one of the greatest action movies ever?
1: Uh, I'm going to correct you. Greatest movies ever. I'm sorry. I love Terminator 2. It's right up there for me with, like, Casablanca. I think it is a perfect, perfect movie. But, yes, in terms of action movie, it is amazing.
0: Why do you feel that way?
1: Okay. Okay. First off, Arnold Schwarzenegger is incredible. This is one of the things that I deeply, deeply believe. And the more that we learn about him as a human being, I think the more that that is revealed. If you look at the documentary Pumping Iron Mm -hmm. from, like, way back.
0: Way back.
1: Like, it's so easy, right? Like, I get it. You watch Conan. You watch the first Terminator. It's very easy to be like, okay, he was just, like, this big, strong, muscly man, and they threw him on to film. But, no, he actually worked very, very hard to get into Hollywood in the first place. Second off, many people told him he would never make it because of his accent. Mm. And third, he was incredibly smart. Like, he is a calculating individual. It's one of my favorite things about Pumping Iron. Was he nice in that movie? Absolutely not. But he is getting in the heads of his competitors, and you can tell he is just so driven. So to see him get such a large shot, in Terminator 1, of course, incredible film. He is the villain. But to see him getting a shot at basically being the anti-hero of this film, I just thought it worked so, so well. The second thing that I love, and I think it's something that drew me to it as a kid, um, Eddie Furlong. First off, great haircut. That's what I talk about in the well, book.
0: You you mimicked his haircut, <laughs> yeah, make, which was my next question. No, so, but And let's get
1: to that in a second. But I just want to say real quick, I think why... It imprinted on me at such a young age why I loved it so much. Of course, the action's amazing. Sarah Connor is such a strong Mm. female lead. It's incredible. But the thing that I really think I love about it is it's about protecting a kid. And I think when you grow up in a home or you have a childhood where you maybe don't feel protected, the fantasy of that movie is what if there was a giant robot arnold schwarzenegger there to protect you at all times and who child adult whoever doesn't want that sometimes
0: oh okay i get it (laughs) i totally get it yeah let's talk about your hair yeah yeah
1: sorry that's that's the that's the spiritual (laughs) but let's talk about the aesthetics
0: your hair Mm-hmm. You mimicked Eddie Furlong's hair in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um Eddie was the young boy that Arnold Schwarzenegger was protecting and you did this I believe when you were in grade school. Mm-hmm. So so what about his hair was so alluring to you?
1: I like I just thought he looked so cool and I wanted to emulate that. I think when you're young you see something on the screen and you think maybe I could be that cool too. And for me what is hair except for this incredible thing that we get to change or keep the same however we want to present, but all the time. And as a a young person who felt a little sad, That I I felt a little disconnected from pop culture. All my friends had been talking about this movie. At that time, I had yet to see it. And all of a sudden, I was like, I'd seen a poster. I was like, maybe if I get this haircut, people will think that I've seen this movie that is apparently so cool that all my friends can't stop talking about it. And I think that's something I've been a little obsessed with my whole life, which is how I present. Mm -hmm. And when you're poor, you maybe can't buy new clothes. When you're poor, you definitely can't get the new shoes. But hair, even if it's just your friends in their bathroom, was something you could make an attempt at to try and convey, this is who I am. This is how I want to be seen by the world. I might not have Nikes. I might not have the Reebok pumps. I might not have the right shirt, but I can do the right haircut.
0: Absolutely. I've written at length about how, as I was growing up, we were also quite financially challenged. Um, My mother was a seamstress, and so I learned how to sew at a very young age, and both she and I made my own clothes. But, oh, man, did I want a pair of Levi's. (laughs) Oh, man, did I want a pair of Levi's. It was the 70s, and... Um, my mother offered to stitch a little red tag on back of, on the back of one of the pockets of, like, the model's jung- dungarees. And I was like, Mom, that would be worse. That would just be worse. <laughs> and it is. It's
1: that heartbreaking moment when you know your parents are trying yeah. their best to provide. And what a beautiful thought. And, of course, I'm sure as you look back in that moment, it's a um, loving memory. But when you're a kid...
0: Oh yeah. I felt so deprived. Yeah. And you feel <laughs>
1: and you feel crushed in that moment. Yeah. And that is that is really tough. Yeah. You're like, if only I had enough money to buy the right clothes, then I could truly express myself. Yeah.
0: It doesn't work. That's
1: and that's right. That's what you find out later. <laughs> yeah.
0: Too bad, right? Wouldn't it be nice if somebody could just say, you know, it's not gonna give you what you think. That's right. Um, Well, in classic Design Matters interview style, I ordinarily start with a person's origin story and then work up to their most current work. Um, But today, I want to start our interview by talking about your recent memoir, Dirtbag, Massachusetts. And I found an interview with you on The Rumpus from 2011, wherein you stated, I love memoirs, but I don't think I have it in me. I don't think I have the courage. What changed and where did that courage come from?
1: I know you hear this all the time, but Debbie, you are incredible. Your (laughs) research is incredible. Um, I love this and I love that you're bringing this up. This is absolutely the truth. And 2011, I'm sure I was saying this back in 2008, 2006, I would go to a party or I would meet somebody and I would tell them about my childhood. And people would have whatever emotional reaction they have to it. Surprise, sympathy. Every once in a while, though, somebody would say, especially as I started to hang out with more and more artists, more and more writers, hey, have you thought about trying to tell this story? And that's what I always said. I love memoir, but I don't think I have it in me to share. My story, to write my story. What changed? One was I learned how to write via craft. It wasn't until I was well into my 20s that I started to recognize, wait, maybe writing is something you can improve at. Maybe writing is something that you can practice. Maybe if you do it over and over and over again, maybe if you read the people that you love and you can kind of just learn through osmosis a little bit, just surround yourself with the type of writing that you love, maybe you can figure out a way to tell your own story. That was first. But second, I think much more importantly was I learned that my story was maybe a valid one to tell. Because that's what I think I'm really saying in that moment. When somebody would ask me, hey, would you ever tell that story? No, 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 no. What that really meant was, I didn't think my story was important enough. Why would anybody care about the story that I have to tell? There are so many different stories out there in the world. And something I loved from a very early age was interviewing other people and highlighting, spotlighting turning the spotlight on other people's stories. It's something I loved to do from a very early age. It wasn't until I was maybe in my 30s that I started to realize that's because I desperately wanted to tell my story. That's what I couldn't admit to myself. That's what I'm not saying in that 2011 interview. The right answer to that is I'm dying to tell it, but I don't think it's important enough. I don't know how to. And, uh, And it wasn't until I watched many, many people, Roxane Gay is a great example, Bad Feminist is a lodestar for me, Um, and many other friends, people that I have in my life that I'm lucky enough to call friends or say that I love, I watch as they create their stories. I watch as they put their stories into the world, and I slowly start to realize maybe there's a chance I could figure out how to do it.
0: In that same interview, you said that you write like you tell stories with a lot of bullshit. <laughs> but I didn't get the sense while reading your book there was an iota of bullshit in it. There was no bullshit. It was an, It's no bullshit. It's a confessional. A no bullshit confessional.
1: Well, I think again in 2011, and now we're talking over a decade ago, which is wild. Again, it's so. It's so. In, I. You know, you've read this. I haven't thought of this interview probably in forever, if if, if ever. Um, it's so interesting to see the way that my shields are up. And that's the best way to oh, describe I like it. Yeah. I'm saying, oh, d- little old me, I'm not worthy of telling my story. Little old me, oh, even when I tell my stories, even when I do write, oh, don't worry, it's just bullshit. I The phrase I love is Irish storytelling. Yes. Which, of course, I come from a long history of people who, you know, if the fish was this big, maybe it was a little bigger when they tell the story again, and that's... A long tradition, but I think that was also my own way of muddying the waters and not having the strength or bravery to put myself front and center yet. And and what changed in the last decade is I realized, wait a second, there is a way to tell these stories. Maybe these stories could be of use to other people. And it's actually in the scraping away of the bullshit that I'm going to find the stories that I want to tell. And that's truly—this book— is is it's a short read it's what I love about it I wanted to write a book that 14-year-old me could stuff in their back pocket I know, and that's read That's
0: why I really love that we're talking about the paperback
1: Yeah the paperback yeah exactly I that's this is the book that, this book was always supposed to be a paperback God bless you Bloomsbury God bless independent bookstores I understand more money is made off hard, hardcovers but I have always wanted a paperback and so I wrote it short But how does it get to be that way? Well, no, I wrote a lot of bullshit on the page. And then it's about scraping that away to get to, like, the diamond center of the story.
0: You start the book with a line you knew from a young age you wanted to use someday, assuming that you know it by heart. And I was wondering if you can share it with us.
1: Absolutely. My parents were married when they had me, just to different people. And that's it. Yeah, that line—it's
0: it's like right up there with baby shoes never used.
1: I <laughs> <laughs> so listen. I love first lines have always been an obsession of mine. Call me Ishmael. First lines and last words. You know those are those are the things that I'm somewhat obsessed with. And I knew from a very early age that in that sentence I had something special. And even before I could allow myself to think about writing my own story, which you can tell, 2011, I wasn't even close to being able to admit that I I wanted to tell my own story. I knew just in personal interactions, it was this beautiful line because it was part a joke, part the truth, but most important, part deflection. I could say it, the person would kind of laugh, and then I could move on and turn the attention back to them. So I knew I had this great line in it. What happens with the book is that what happens when I don't turn that attention to the other person and then just actually write the rest of the story after that sentence.
0: You describe your parents as smart, itchy, unsteady people, both in their 30s when they met, confused and lonely and searching for some kind of salvation, but they wanted to find it the hard way. Why the hard way?
1: The truth about my parents, and there's (laughs) many truths about my parents, but the the truth about my parents is that they had it. They had a good life, both of them, Maybe a little different income, you know. Maybe this, that. There's a little trouble there, but they had a family. They had love. They had security.
0: They each had children with their previous spouse. They
1: each had a child. It was, for lack of better word, you know. It's 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 basically the the American dream of that time period. They had it. So when I say the hard way, I I'm almost saying it. In a complimentary style, because instead of settling for that, which clearly wasn't satisfying them, instead of just saying, hey, this is the life I'm gonna live, I'm gonna just keep doing it, they decided to take big risks and, you know, make, let's be honest, messy, messy choices and messy mistakes. But I think it was in hopes that life could be more fulfilling. And life could be happier. And that's incredible in a way. It's something that I actually deeply admire about them. It's it's not to say it's not complicated, but I think they chose the hard road. They could have lived a less happy life, but more stable. And they decided to roll the dice again. And it was hard and a difficult path, but I'm impressed by that.
0: You were the accidental byproduct of the sin, so to speak, between two devoutly Catholic divinity students. Mm -hmm. And you state that this was your mother's panic fling, Mm -hmm. one final push against the life that was expected of her before she settled down. Now, from everything I've read about your mother— this affair seems so out of character to her.
1: And that's what I think makes it so daring. No offense to my pops. Mm, love you, Dad. I wasn't, a, love wasn't you, out of
0: character for him. Love you, Dad.
1: You're great, but it was pretty in character for you. <laughs> right. But for her, I think that's what made it such an incredible reach and something that I think she then struggled with for the rest of her life, which you see. I think she has always struggled with the decisions that she made around this time in her life. And... And, and figuring out how to come to peace with that. And who can't
0: relate to that? Was he ready for the consequences of their affair? And, and it's a two-part question. A, was he ready for the consequences of the affair? And B, I assume she was madly in love with him.
1: So this is what I can say. The story as I know it is that my mother had actually called it off. She had said, hey... We can't do this anymore. Right. I think my father had been in that situation before. And he said, no problem. But what if we took one last trip to the White Mountains? It's always that one last trip. That one last trip. It's always the one (laughs) last trip. It's always that one last trip. (laughs) And that's what they would do. They would go to the White Mountains. They would tell their spouses that there was a Divinity School trip that there wasn't. And they would go. And then the way it's been told to me is they were then out of touch. My mother then realizes she's pregnant. She has a choice. She has a few choices. She has a few choices. She has a few choices. She can tell her husband it's his. She can have an abortion. She can figure out one of the other million choices that come after that. I now know, I didn't know this when I was writing the book, is that she and my father get back in touch. And he really was pushing for her not to get that abortion. Which I didn't know. I didn't know. And it's kind of beautiful, kind of fascinating. Um, I do think she loved him very much. And I think he loved her. What I don't think I knew, even when I wrote this book, was that in a way they were coming together to try and actually love me. And th- these are the things that happen that you get told after you write a memoir. Right. But I really, I do, I do think that's they they re- they realized they were in a tough spot, and the only way out was through.
0: Once you were born, their lives they wreaked havoc on their lives. They blew mm-hmm. up their lives. Mm-hmm. You and your parents mm-hmm. were unhoused. Mm-hmm. You lived in the Haley House, which Mm -hmm. was considered a homeless shelter Mm -hmm. in South Boston. Mm -hmm. But you loved it there.
1: On paper, I'm growing up unhoused. On paper, I'm living in shelters. On paper, I'm experiencing something not many other children are experiencing. I loved it. I was surrounded by other human beings. I was so inquisitive. I was so chipper. Annoyingly chipper, I'm sure. There are certain people in the shelter, I'm sure, that were like, keep that kid away from me. But I loved being surrounded by so many people in such a strong, caring community. So on paper, they eventually get out of that situation and they go live in the woods. That should be, oh, now it should be the fun childhood part. But that's when things actually took a turn for the worse. My warmest memories as a child... Is living in inner city Boston in the eighties when things were very rough, surrounded by people who had rough backgrounds, but who really loved me, and I I so appreciate that.
0: You and your mother moved to a town called Athole, Massachusetts, mm-hmm. when you were eight years old. Mm-hmm. Your dad stayed in South Boston for work, mm-hmm. supposedly. You've written how everyone else in the state called it Rat Hole, Massachusetts, mm-hmm. or A Hole, Massachusetts. <laughs> Um, Athol also happened to have the highest teenage pregnancy rate per capita. Mm-hmm. How did you and your mother moving to the country impact your relationship with both of them? I mean, she really thought she was doing the right thing by you, I assume.
1: No, that's right. That's, th- this is the thing that you see as an adult. You see how your parents were actually trying to make decisions to improve your life. But as you're experiencing them when you're young, you don't understand that. And the shock of the change, and especially if you feel like you've gone from a happy place to a sad place, can feel overwhelming. This is something I think about a lot. When you're a kid, your world is your home. Also, maybe school, secondary. That's it. Those are the spaces that you occupy and those are the places that are most important to you. If an adult comes home and they're angry, that anger fills your whole world. Now, when you're an adult, maybe your boss was a jerk. Maybe you got cut off on the way home. Maybe X, Y, or Z, the bills aren't being paid. There's a million reasons why you're feeling anxiety, why you're feeling stressed out, why you're feeling mad or angry. You don't even realize that you're filling this small child's whole world with that anger. A few years can pass and you're having a rough patch. A few years pass and you're like, ooh, that was tough. But hey, things are getting better now. Because when you're older, a few years is not that long of an amount of time. When you're eight and your mother or father or both have hit a four-year rough patch, that's half your life. That's all that you know. So I understand now that my mom was trying to do her best. I had been mugged at gunpoint. Somebody had been shot on our front steps. Our neighborhood was rough. The living situation we were in was rough. She was doing her best to get me out of there with the low amount of means that she had. And this was the option, to move out there. Her parents were from that area. There was a farm. There's a house. We can go there. I can see that now. But when I was a kid, all I knew was that there was this place that I liked. I loved the people. I loved the community. Now it was me and my mom. And my mom was getting very sad. Of course, because she's wrestling with this decision, which to her, eight years ago, is a pretty recent decision, actually. But to me, I'm like, why is she so sad about something that happened so long ago?
0: Was she sad that your dad was now living back in South Boston Mm. while she was trying to raise you Mm. in a house next to your grandparents in a place that she thought would be more bucolic?
1: Yeah. No, I th- I mean listen, I think her sadness was very complex. Yeah. And I think there's mental health stuff there, yeah. oh, which yeah. which I struggle with as well. But if I was to take a shot in the dark, I think she dreamed of a bigger life. And is there misbehavior on my father's part? Absolutely. Her parents, again, also coming from a rough backgrounds. So their stuff, you know, there's no fault to be laid at anybody's feet. But they were definitely tough on her. She wanted to live a bigger life. And here she was, back where she grew up, in that same area where she always thought she was gonna get away from. Mm. And she's raising a kid next to these parents who are rather judgmental. There are other complex reasons why she was sad, but I think at that moment in her life, the question for her was, how did I end up back here?
0: Yeah. It seems as if at this point in your life, your parents really lost themselves. They lost their center. Mm -hmm. Um, Your father began to have affairs. He drank too much. He was physically abusive to you. This is going to be rough to say out loud. Mm -hmm. Um, Your mother confessed she had considered aborting you Mm -hmm. and shared that information with you in a car ride, mm-hmm. told you that you might have been better off dead. Mm-hmm. I mean, you were eight years old when she told you this. That's right. I don't even understand how that could possibly be something you ever recover from.
1: Yeah. I mean, the most human answer I have is I don't know if I have yet. Yeah. But I think I'm working on it. I think that's the work of living. Yeah. Um. No. But but I no I I I want I, w- I want to sit there for a second. It's, okay. It's okay. I will say in that moment, I don't fully comprehend what I'm hearing.
0: Did did you even know what an abortion was?
1: I did, I think, because of Catholicism. Like, Uh, I I understood what she was saying. And I understood that she was sad. And so I knew when she said maybe it would have been for the best. I know that she's sharing in that moment that, like, we're all in a tough spot. And I think she's questioning her decision. I got that. But when you're young, I don't think you totally have an idea of what death is yet. Like I understood what, but you know, like I don't think I don't think I fully grasped what she was saying. I mean, it wounded me. I want to be I want to be clear about that. It did wound me, but I don't think I realized how hard I was being wounded in that moment. What I really remember from that moment is how unhappy she was in recognizing that, not fully understanding what was being said, but truly fully understanding that my mother was unhappy. And then I think there's a second realization, which is she shouldn't be saying this to me. I knew that. I didn't fully comprehend what it was, but I knew that she shouldn't be saying it to me because there should have been another adult. There was somebody else, a friend, a parent who was maybe more sympathetic, a partner who was maybe there, who she should have been able to share that with. But that's when I realized how alone she and I truly were. So many years of my life have been spent being angry at that moment. I think now I can recognize how sad that moment must have been for her. And how truly alone somebody has to feel to say that to an eight-year-old. Because she's not, it wasn't coming from a vicious place. She didn't mean to wound me. I think she wanted very much not to be. But I think she felt so isolated and so alone in that moment. And I internalized that in a real way. It's been something I still struggle with. Absolutely self-esteem. But also, I don't know if we want to chalk this up to being Irish, optimistic, that same chipper kid that was running around the, the homeless shelter. But there was a part of me that made, it made my life feel special. It made me realize that there was a risk taken to bring me into this world. And that two people might have been making mistakes left, right, and center, and constantly. But there had been another option for them, too. And it almost made me feel like there's the saying, it's, it's, and I'm not trying to be glib or trite, but just like everything after that felt like icing. My life was mine to do what I wanted to do with it. That's how... I came to think about that moment, not in that moment when I was eight, but not long after, probably around 12, when I start taking more and more risks, I started to realize, hey, I might be in extra innings already. <laughs> there's, there's a weird freeingness to that feeling. And yeah, it's tough. Obviously, you shouldn't say that to an eight-year-old. It was a defining moment in my life. But I'd be lying if I said it was all hardship on my end. It was very sad, very wounding. But in a way, it was also freeing.
0: It does get worse, though, Isaac. (laughs) I mean, your mother becomes suicidal. Mm -hmm. She made a couple of serious attempts on Mm -hmm. her own life. You write how she talked about wanting to die so much Mm -hmm. that you not only got used to it, you started thinking about it, too, Mm -hmm. and rigged a wooden board by your bed which could have killed you. Can you explain Mm -hmm. to our listeners what that was?
1: Yeah. So basically when I hit my teen years, I start to have a lot of issues. There's a lot of violence. There's a lot of anger. A lot of bad things happened, but then we didn't talk about them. So my mom would attempt a suicide. I would witness it. We would handle it. But no one ever then said, hey, that was a lot. We should probably talk about this. It was a very New England, okay? On to the next thing. So I think I had so many emotions inside of me that I didn't know what to do with. So I find drinking, I find drugs at a very early age. But I'm also very aware of suicide. And you go back to what I was told when I was eight. I've been grappling now for four years, which again, when you're 12, is a third of your life, with do I deserve to exist or not? And so I made a contraption. We had so many knives in my house. We're very outdoorsy, we love to camp, I still do. And so we had a lot of knives and I got a bunch of them together and I basically made this contraption that I would pull out from underneath my bed and the knives were all sticking up and then because sometimes I'd roll out of bed and in my mind suicide was a sin but this wouldn't be this would be I'm kind of giving God an option to give me an out and so I didn't do it every night but it was under my bed at all times and I would bring it out and I would set it up on the times when I was probably feeling saddest. And I did that probably throughout my entire middle school years, which, again, two years. If we really wanted to get into the math of it, probably not a ton of times. But doesn't when you're matter. a kid, yeah, But when you're a kid, it, it doesn't change the fact that that's where I was at mentally and with no one to talk to about it.
0: Did anyone care for you at that time?
1: It's, that's a complicated question. Because this is, the real, like, truly, I want to say this. I had a roof over my head. Sometimes I was cooking the meals, but I had meals. I do think they cared. You know, I, 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 it was not, was I neglected with massive amounts of time alone? 100%. I'm not here to pretend that that's not true. I was on my own constantly. But part of that was because they had to work whatever jobs they could get and that meant they weren't around a lot more cuz they had to pay those bills. So alone, yes, cared for in its own way I do believe I was. But at that point is when I start to to make decisions that start to put myself in danger on my own.
0: It does seem as if one of the things that helped you and comforted you was reading. And you write how your parents' faith in literature was as strong as their faith in Catholicism, maybe stronger. And even before you learned how to read, you learned how to respect books. As a second religion, your apartment was bare, except for milk crates overflowing with novels and plays and history books and collections of Shakespeare Your dad read you The Hobbit when you were five. Mm. He gave you On the Road when you were 11. (laughs) He also gave you books by Charles Bukowski and Ken Kesey, books you refer to as the classics for making sure your kid turns into an upstanding citizen. (laughs) Um, You've said that you came to know each other through books. It Mm. seems like you came to know yourself in a lot of ways through reading and writing.
1: Yeah. Books mattered to my parents. I wanted to matter to my parents. So, of course, I started to care about books, too. And it's not hard to look at my entire life and realize how I put books at the burning hot center of my entire existence. Yeah, But it was also a gift they gave to me. This is a a, a perfect example. You said, was anyone caring about you at that time? I was very alone. But even before my dad moved out of the city, he recorded himself reading the Lord of the Rings trilogy, because he knew how much I loved the Hobbit when he read it to me. And he used to send me out the tapes. I mean, perfect person? Absolutely not. But that's it, that's an effort. You can't oh, we'll en- give him a point. Then. Yeah, yeah, that's, <laughs> we'll give him a point. That's, that's making an effort right <laughs> there, right? And so they. Believed in education and they believed in literature, and I think they believed in making sense of oneself through seeing what else was out there in the world and that is something that I picked up from them. I love this quote from this play. it's called the History Boys and it's a British play, and I'm not going to be able to do it verbatim because I'm not that good of an actor, but I do the the, the gist of the quote is. A professor's talking to students and he says, the best things about literature, about books, is you're reading them and you can come across a phrase or an expression of a feeling or perhaps a deep hidden desire and you see it there on the page. You think you are the only person that's had that thought ever or only had that experience in your entire life. You see it on the page. It's like a hand comes out and grasps your own and you feel less alone in the world. I know my parents believe in that power. I know they gave me that power. I'm sure we'll get into it at some point, their reaction to the book, but I can just share right now. My father, when he reads it, writes me a letter. One of the things he said was, "Um, well, you can't say we didn't give you things to write about. <laughs> <laughs> Which again, it's, I mean, oof. Yeah. But it's Irish. It's very Irish. It's very, ugh. Yeah. And, and I just, I do think they themselves had this ambition of living a life worthy of, of being put down on paper. And I, in, in their own way, I think they very much did. And I think in a way weird way, they wanted that for me.
0: Even with the early drinking, your teachers, your librarians all recognized how smart you were and encouraged you to apply to Cushing Academy, which was a private school. I assume you had excellent grades in order to do that. You got in. Mm -hmm. You've stated the school took a giant gamble, not only in accepting you, but in giving you a full scholarship. Mm -hmm. Why was it such a gamble?
1: I mean, one, I was... It was only 40 minutes from where I was from. Like, friends could come and pick me up in their trucks. (laughs) Like, there was there was a chance that I was going to be not a very good student. Um, again, my parents instill in me this understanding that if you just show up, because you're absolutely right. I'm, I, can, I can just be immodest for a second. I tested well. I always got good grades. No matter how much trouble I was getting in, I never skipped school. I would always show up because I knew in some way the better grades I got, the less people would be on my back. That was always my thinking, is don't draw attention to yourself. You can have more freedom to be a fuck up in a way if you're not raising all of these flags. But when I get to this boarding school, I remember being like, okay, I really have to get it together now. But you
0: didn't really. I mean, that's when you started snorting Adderall and Ritalin and partaking in other legal and illegal substances. And and that's what I'm saying.
1: is, I remember being like, oh, this is gonna be different. And then I got there. And that's when I realized a huge thing, which is Oh, rich kids are fuck-ups, too. (laughs) (laughs) Because that's what happened. In that first year, I went in with such a large chip on my shoulder. But I remember being like, oh, they're giving me this scholarship. This feels like a big risk. Like, I got to show up. And as I go through that year, one, I realize rich kids just have better drugs, sometimes often more neglectful parents. And it's a great awakening for me because I had not really traveled outside of the state of Massachusetts at that point. All of a sudden, I'm meeting people from all around the world. I'm having, again, it's I'm back in the system that I was in, in the Catholic worker. All of a sudden, I'm surrounded by people with all these diverse backgrounds, all these different ways of living. I get to learn from them. I'm so excited. My mind is engaged in that way because I'm no longer lonely in the woods. I am now surrounded by people once again but in my head, I was like, oh, yeah, but they're jerks. They're rich. Like, I had this real class chip on my shoulder. And it was not through my first year that I started to realize, wait a second. Don't get me wrong. Some of these kids are massive dickheads. But some of them are incredibly kind and incredibly caring. And that's when I started going home and seeing friends from my hometown and recognizing some of those people are still people I love to this day, and I'm very much in touch with them. But all of a sudden realizing, wait a second, some of them are also huge assholes. <laughs> and, and and definitely wouldn't like maybe some of my new friends from other parts of the world. And what does that mean if for a long time I think I really believed in, there was almost a saintliness to being poor. And I start to realize Class is actually this more complicated thing. Now, don't get me wrong. I learned how to code switch. I'm one way when I'm home. I'm one way when I'm at Cushing. But I started to bridge this idea of like understanding that knowing people from not my background could be really good and interesting people wide in my world in this in this new and incredible way. And what more do you want in an education than that? So they took a risk on me for sure. But I'm so glad they did.
0: Now it's time for an ad I created with our sponsor, Target.
2: 20% of Americans have some form of disability that we have excluded from our lives, from partnerships, from creativity, and that is about to change.
0: Tom DiMaria is the Director Emeritus at Creative Growth, an art nonprofit based in Oakland, California. The organization advances the inclusion of artists with developmental disabilities in contemporary art by providing them with supportive studio environments and gallery representation.
2: Creative growth artists make work that's visually appealing and references their own worldview. And many of our artists have been coming every day for 35 or 40 years.
0: I loved reading about one of your artists who is blind and it really pushed me to reconsider how people make and
2: approach art. Monica Valentine is an artist who has orthotic eyes and can't see and makes elaborately intricate sculptures out of pins and colored sequins and beads and styrofoam that are organized by color that she says she feels in her hands. There's a enjoyment of the work of an artist from creative growth, because it's so personal, it's so visceral. And we still have to knock down doors and say this work is contemporary, but that is really changing. Now people come to us and say, can we include your artists in this exhibition?
0: What would you consider to be some of your biggest successes over the years?
2: I think one of the biggest successes, if I look back over 20 plus years, is really how Artists with disabilities are in so many different venues. If you go into San Francisco Museum of Modern Art right now, there's William Scott painting on the wall. And for William to go there with his family and to have viewers come and see it in a contemporary context is amazing.
0: Next year, the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art will showcase a major acquisition of work by the artists into the museum's permanent collection.
2: And I think if anyone then doubts that the walls and the barriers are not going to come down, this will be a moment to say, like, it's all changing. I think what's interesting with the creative growth artists is that they don't really separate the world of design from the world of art.
0: Creative growth artists have also partnered with brands. And one of their favorite design collaborations was with a longtime supporter.
2: Target. A transformative moment with our relationship with Target is the partnership that we did with Method Soap. Method said, we really want to bring your artist's work forward. We want them to be designers for us. So the Method team came. It's like, what does that design smell like? And we came up with the whole package and we sold millions of bottles. Of all the projects in museums and exhibitions that Creative Growth has done. Walking down the block to our Target store with the artists and they see the product on the shelf was amazing.
0: How have these design collaborations impacted Creative Growth?
2: I think it just broadens the scope of how our artists can be seen in contemporary society as creative leaders. The artists feel like they're valuable and they've done something to contribute. You know, if you grow up with a disability in America, you're often measured by your deficiencies, not by your accomplishments. And when creative growth changes that idea and everyone is has these accomplishments that they're proud of, they become different people.
0: Through strategic partnerships with organizations like Creative Growth, Target leverages their resources to help reduce disparities, to provide equitable and inclusive opportunities, and to strengthen the diverse needs of the communities they serve. Visit Target.com to learn more. I do so much work online and collaborate with a lot of different people, clients, students, partners, friends, sometimes even podcast guests. And my favorite tool to help facilitate genuine teamwork is Miro. Miro is a visual workspace any team anywhere can use to manage projects, design products, and bring any kind of documentation together in one shared workplace on Miro's infinite canvas. I work with my colleagues to brainstorm ideas, co-create project deliverables, and I can even include audio and video in one shared, integrated space. Frankly, I don't know what I'd do without it. And now, your first 3 Miro boards are free forever when you sign up. Sign up today at miro.com/podcast. That's M I R O You loved bars from the first moment you drank in one. I think you were 14, but you'd been drinking since you were 12. You, as I mentioned, were experimenting with all sorts of drugs and substances. How did you not die? Mm. (laughs) How did you not get addicted?
1: Mm I want to be clear. I'm not going to say I didn't get addicted. Really? Yeah. I think I, I I used a lot. I do think, and this is the first time I've, I've really thought about this and tried to connect these things, but there's something about that same mentality that I just mentioned about showing up to school. Fuck off all you want, screw up all you want, but get your work in, Show up to class. You're not going to get in as much trouble. I'd run in with run-ins with the police. I would take cars for joy rides. You're really
0: lucky you didn't end up in jail.
1: No, I know. I know. And I have have many friends who did. But the joy rides is a great example. I want to be very clear, not condoning this behavior. But I would bring the car back. (laughs) And this is what I'm talking about. I have always been a big drinker. That is going to be an ongoing struggle in my life. I'm lucky in that I do not do drugs the way that I used to. But when I did, I always had these weird bumpers. Okay, so-and-so brought this to this. Oh, hey, we're going to go get—you know what, guys? Good luck. I think I'm going to call it a night. Call it self-preservation— but I don't want to, I mean, I don't think that's right because I think I was interested in self-destructive behavior at that time. I just think I had that same mentality of like, okay, go to class, it won't raise red flags. Couple day bender, go for it, man. Have fun. Start to become a week? No, you got to get out of there. I think I've always been good at setting up little responsibilities for myself to make sure that I didn't completely go off the deep end. It's tough because drugs are really fun. And when you have low self-esteem and low sense of self-worth, a lot of those drugs, in a way, give you that same feeling of that hand grasping in that book. You feel either less alone or cocooned from a world that causes you pain. But I think I knew at that point I at least wanted to live, and so I didn't follow the path all the way down. I always returned
0: the car. And you got good grades. You got good enough grades to get a full scholarship to George Washington University. That's right. Um, You studied politics. What were you thinking that you would do at that point professionally?
1: Again, it's it's a long history of librarians and teachers showing up for me and being like, hey, man, maybe you can do something a little bit more. Maybe you can dream a little bit bigger. And that happens to me throughout my life. But they were like, what about college? What do you want to do? And all I knew was that people liked when I talked. (laughs) And people are like, oh, that well, that's politicians. Uh, maybe lawy. lawyer, lawyer, politician. So go study political science. So somebody just told that to me, and I just stuck with it. Uh, and I did. I went to school for four years. I maintained my scholarship. I did well. I worked many different jobs to because that's what they don't tell you about a scholarship is they're like, congrats, we'll pay for the school and we'll pay for the food. No walking around money, you know. And when you're in a boarding school, that's one thing. But when you, you know, when you're out of college, it's another. And uh, so I had to work the whole way through, and I graduate and I start working for a guy. This is not in the book, but it's in another essay. I worked for a guy. His name's Patrick Murphy. Yeah,
0: you you. Uh, he was elected to Congress. Hell of a two thousand six. Dem-
1: that's right, Blue Wave. Hell of an American, youngest Democrat on the Hill. Iraq War vet. I love him very much. But after that, I was like. This is like basically I just got out and I started doing the work that I studied. And I realized, "Oh, I've wasted a college degree because <laughs> I don't want to do this at you hated all." It, right? I hated it. That's exactly <laughs> right.
0: Well, then you then followed a girl to San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um aside from the girl, what was your plan at that time?
1: I mean, this is where we get into a real free floating time.
0: Yes. Is that what inspired you to begin working with the Free Burma Rangers?
1: Well, so let's I think I think this is a, another fun moment to 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 share a story that's not in the book. I moved to San Francisco. As you said, I moved out there for a girl. I think she was very surprised when I showed up. I think we talked a lot on the phone and there have been a lot of sweet nothings. There'd been a lot of yeah, come out to San Francisco. And then I was like, I'm here. She's like, "Whoa. Okay. Holy smokes. She's living in a place with, like, many different roommates, not many bedrooms. So she's trying to get me out of the house. And she says, look, there's this place. I don't know if you've seen it. It's on Valencia Street. There's a sign. It says storytelling and bookmaking workshop. Why don't you go down there? And so I go down there. That's 826, right? 826 Valencia. I didn't know anything about it.
0: (laughs) I love that. You went in there blind.
1: I went in there completely blind. And I walk in, and it's very clear that they're having an open house. And I'm like, oh, for people who are interested in learning how to make books, I've read my entire life. But up until that moment, I was not very aware of a contemporary writing scene. And I definitely didn't realize that being an author was a way you could still make a living. I've grown up with books, mostly old books, nothing about, oh, hey, this is a job option for you. And so I sit down, quickly becomes apparent that this is a volunteer organization that is looking to get adult volunteers to work with kids. I'm 23 years old. I've written a kid's book now. I love kids now. But at the time, I was like, I'm not interested. But I knew it'd be rude. Again, this gets back to that same self I was like, I was never that much of a jerk. I was like, I can't just walk out.
0: Right. I remember you writing about you didn't want to be rude. Yeah, exactly.
1: (laughs) So I didn't want to be rude. So I sat there and I looked around and I raised my hand when it came time for questions because I asked, hey, what's this? And it's all these different pieces of paper that are framed on the wall and they're covered in markings. They're typed up, but they're covered in markings. I said, what are those? And they said, oh, each of those pages – is a piece of a manuscript, a manuscript that eventually became a book. But we do that here because we're a writing organization for kids. Writing is a very lonely art, but we want them to realize either their teachers or their parents or a volunteer here, or eventually, if they become a writer, an editor can give them feedback. They don't have to take all of it, but it can help improve their story. And it was the first time in my life that somebody had talked about writing as craft. Up until then, I thought you either had it or you didn't. You lived in like a white tower and you just wrote perfect prose and that's how you're a writer. That was the first time that I, I realized, wait, maybe I can take these stories. You know, I, I wasn't ready to write my own memoir. but I was like, maybe I can write something that is of use to other people eventually. And that's and that's the gift that, that moving to San Francisco gave to me. That was the first place. I mean, don't get me wrong. I do end up working with the Free Burma Rangers, Zeitgeist, the Armory. We can talk all about that. But 826 Valencia was where I found a community of writers. And in that moment, I thought, maybe I could
0: do that. How long after you had that experience mm-hmm. did it take for you to become the director of publicity at McSweeney's, which is Dave Eggers' publishing empire, 826 is the nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting under-resourced students with their writing skills, started by Dave Eggers and his wife. Seven years. Seven (laughs) years. Wow.
1: I'm really excited. This is a fun—this is another—like, just know that I got a job at 826 Valencia eventually. I probably—I volunteered for six months. I became an intern. I was working at Buca de Beppo to pay the bills. I got a job as an executive assistant to the executive director of 826 Valencia, wonderful woman, Nineveh Caligari. She's incredible. I was probably the world's worst executive assistant. (laughs) I was 23 years old. I was very bad at scheduling. I was very bad (laughs) at everything.
0: It's kind of what you need to be able to be good at when you're an executive assistant.
1: (laughs) So God bless Nineveh. She very gently let me go. But I remained connected to the organization. So I was in that world for a very long time. And it wasn't until I was 30 that I ended up working for McSweetie's. Did a better job the second time around.
0: I want to go back to your working with the Free Burma Rangers because I think that was a big transformative experience in how you thought about yourself. And Mm -hmm. for those that might not be aware, the Free Burma Rangers self-describe as a multi-ethnic humanitarian service movement working to bring help hope, and love to people in Burma. That's right. They also illegally smuggle medical supplies over international borders into conflict zones to assist with medical aid for people who are being attacked by the Burmese junta. How dangerous was this for you?
1: It was dangerous for me, but not nearly as dangerous it was for the people that we were trying to help, and not nearly as dangerous for me as it was for the volunteers who worked to make that organization run. I have a lot of respect for Dave Eubank and his family and the people that make that organization work.
0: Your life was in danger several times in that experience. What provoked you to want to do this?
1: I think it has to do with that exact same kid who was pulling those knives out from underneath Mm -hmm. his bed. I knew I wasn't going to take my own life, but I do believe I was obsessed with putting my own life in danger. I think that came from a lack of self-respect for myself, a lack of self-love for myself, and the knowledge that I was empty in a certain way, but maybe, and this is where we get into the almost optimistic side of myself, maybe I can turn that emptiness into something that could help others. And that's what appealed to me about the Free Burma Rangers. I could go over there, and put myself in danger, and maybe it could help somebody else.
0: Before you left the U.S. to do the work, you wrote that you had to figure out how not to want to die. Mm -hmm. Did the experience change how you felt about your life?
1: Yeah. I think the experience helped me value my life.
0: You write this in your memoir. You say... I know that for the rest of my life I will, from time to time, think that the world would be better off without me. But it's happening less as I get older. I will always be trying to stop wondering what exactly I'm good for, to instead make peace with the fact that I deserve to be alive, and from that more calm and steady place will be better able to wrestle with what I can do for myself and others without needing the crutch of certainty. Mm -hmm. Has publishing your memoir helped you with that?
1: Yes. The memoir has helped me ha- have a better relationship with my parents, but it's also helped me have a better relationship with myself. I think in diving into these stories and finding value in them, in a way, helped me find value in myself. This isn't something I expected. I want to be clear about that. That's not—it was in no way a goal. But as I move through the world now, I'm feeling myself having a lighter ease and again to that same point it doesn't mean it's all the time but right now this book part of the art of it part of the doing it part of the writing it was sitting down and looking at things that I realized I couldn't look directly at for years and years and years and there was some real relief and some real self-realizations that came from actually sitting down and and looking directly at these moments and these memories.
0: After leaving Burma, you returned to San Francisco and got a job you had coveted for some time, working at the legendary bar Zeitgeist, which you describe as a metal bar meets dive bar meets German beer garden aesthetic. (laughs) Why was that job so important to you?
1: I... Loved Zeitgeist from the second that I set foot in it. I could not have told you why at the time. But now, looking back, it is so clear for me to draw a direct line from the Haley House in the south end of Boston, that shelter for the unhoused, to Zeitgeist, which was a wonderful, loud bar where people from all walks of life could feel at home, could feel safe. And then above that bar, there were two floors of SEO housing. So it was truly a community unto itself. And of course, in the moment, I didn't realize that. But looking back and through therapy, it becomes so clear to me. What I loved about that place was it reminded me of the last time I truly felt loved and safe, which was before I was the age of eight.
0: You said this about working at Zeitgeist. The bar could give me everything I wanted all in one spot. A place to drink, talk, laugh, grieve, think. A place that comforted me with the old and familiar and exhilarated me with the fresh and strange. A place I worshipped and worshipped at. And then you go on to write, when you live a small life, it's important to have small dreams. Mm -hmm. Working at Zeitgeist was mine. Did you really think that your life was small? Mhm. Do you still? No. Okay,
1: good. No. Debbie's like, I'm going to give this man a hug.
0: Well, no, I I relate to a lot of you know, we I'm I'm a lot older than you, but I had that same period of life from 8 to 12, which I call the black years. And so I know what that does to a person. I really understand wanting more. mm Mhm. I understand, you know, wanting to feel like you matter. Hence, design matters. Um,
1: And wanting to feel loved. And wanting to feel something new. And wanting to get away from this place where you feel so worthless.
0: Yeah, but it felt like that was such a big dream. And I was so happy when you get your job there. I mean, you wanted it so badly. And even your first experience there, you're practically thrown out by the bartender who you offended (laughs) by accident, trying to impress him. Um, So it felt like it was a big dream. And it felt like that fueled more big dreams somehow.
1: No, and I think that's a beautiful way to look at it. But I think at that point, so truly I lived on the same block as the bar. So at that point, I think, um, and again, I've never talked about this, Debbie, but you're doing such a good job of kind of drawing these things out of me and having me think about them in real time. And I really think this is right. I, I Just taking a crack at it here, but I loved the shelter. I felt so isolated and alone In the woods then I go to boarding school more community college more community then I move across the country I hadn't traveled much I hadn't all of a sudden a big move I think I was seeking out that kind of small structure again the second I got there because it all felt so big boarding school for me was great because there were rules that I broke of course but there was like a small room that I lived in there was a routine I think I was looking for a return to that smallness. And so I lived on the same block. There was a bar that made me feel at home. I wanted that job so much. I mean, that's why some people, when they're in their 20s, they're moving to Hollywood. They're going to take a crack at acting. (laughs) They're moving to New York. Like, they're you know, even San Francisco, like, I I was drawn to 826 for different reasons. I was drawn to Zeitgeist because I was like, this feels safe. And this feels like a place where I can just be for a little while. And in its own way, to come around to what you're saying, I think that was a big dream for me.
0: Yeah. And it gave, it was like an intimate dream, a dream of intimacy. There you go.
1: Exactly. A dream of intimacy where I could just exist and try to actually figure out who I was.
0: You've mentioned the armory a few times. Mm-hmm. The armory was a building where pornography was shot. Mm-hmm. Kink.com was mm-hmm. born there. And let's talk about your experience working at kink.com and working in the porn business. You were an actor. Mm -hmm. You came to the experience with quite a lot of body issues. Mm -hmm. How did you manage through the anxiety to be able to perform sexually on camera for other people to see?
1: Mm -hmm. I... I've had body image issues my whole life. I still struggle with them. Um, I think many of us do. It is what it is to be human. And this is one of these beautiful juxtapositions in my life that I'm actually, again, in the moment I didn't quite realize, but looking back, I'm so fond of. Because as a kid, I always felt like I was too big. I move out to San Francisco. I'm still feeling that way. There's one photo in the entire book, though. You can see how rail-thin skinny I am.
0: Yeah, Um, we showing. Yeah,
1: but yet I still had this fascination and obsession with the fact that i was too big um that i i was not attractive so how does one come from that mentality to not long after that being on camera in pornography and this is the most mr rogers answer about a porn question you are ever gonna get um but it comes back again to that community through the literary community that I was hanging out with in San Francisco, I began to make meet sex workers. I began to meet porn workers. There was San Francisco's only seven miles by seven miles. It's a wild, wonderful city filled with artists filled with dreamers, and I was working one at a bar where a lot that was truly one block away from the armory. So a lot of these performers were coming to that bar, also other people. Quentin Tarantino, like, many people used to come to this bar. Um, and so that was amazing to be kind of brushing up against that. And then also, through the literary scene, a lot of these sex workers were writers, were visual artists, had their life of expression that was not just through pornography. And so these became my friends. And they were loving, encouraging people. And so that's what happened. I began spending time with these people, and eventually they were like, hey, no pressure, but if you're interested, here's what the job's like, here's what the money would be. If you want to swing by, you could maybe, I mean, as you know from reading the book, it was more of a, hey, somebody didn't show up, we could right. use you in this scene. <laughs> but but it didn't change the fact that through those connections and through those friendships I was made to be put at ease and the camera instead of being voyeuristic towards me started to make me feel oh hey this is the job place where no one is judging me for taking off my shirt somebody's giving me like obviously I'm fulfilling some type of duty here and I'm getting paid for it so in a way that whole situation made me feel more at ease with myself. It made me feel wanted. It made me feel like I was helping out in a way. And instead of actually being ashamed of myself for the first time, I'm not going to say that I loved myself, but I was able to say, hey, I'm obviously adding value here.
0: Were you self-conscious about having sex? As a performance?
1: I mean, so the first time, it was... it's you were very naive. I, 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 I write about yeah, it in the book. And I, I was in a van. <laughs> and yes, I, I, was I, I was more self-conscious of everything that was yeah. happening. But I would say like the next time, like so I go and I get tested because that's what you have to do. For STDs. And you, yeah. Exactly. And I show up to perform and as somebody that had consumed a lot of porn, you have certain ways, but like the real thing is you show up and they're like, there's pizza and (laughs) everyone's hanging out in a robe and there's a lot of laughing and joking and then kind of an, okay, here we go. But then there's like a nice, it's not just like, go. Like they made a really nice, safe feeling space and you would kind of ease into it. And so I knew the director, I knew the person working the camera, I trusted these people and so I don't remember feeling self-conscious. Or if I did, I knew that I could ask to take a break. That was the power of that first moment in the van. I'm watching this giant, hulking man over the woman. And it turns out the woman is the director. She can say stop at any moment. And then, of course, he, you know, I'm not going to give away too much of the book, but he reveals things about himself that are wild.
0: Which are, it was wonderful. and it was a wonder- So well-written. That
1: moment was such a wonderful yeah. moment for me. And so now... um. And, and when I'm in that, I knew that if at any moment I felt uncomfortable, I could I could say something and everything would stop. And that gave me a sense of control that I wasn't used to in my life. And what felt amazing is that I knew everyone else in that scene felt that way, too. Everyone had control to make it stop. And so that I want to just be clear, almost rarely, rarely happened. Because I think we did all feel so safe with one another.
0: Why did you stop?
1: I was just in my 20s. I wish I could tell you there was this big moment or, you know, maybe I was dating somebody who all of a sudden was very uncomfortable with it and they drew a line in the sand. But that's not what happened. I kept doing it. We were all hanging out. Another opportunity came up. That opportunity took me away. Like, all of a sudden, I was working more and more. It's this website, this culture magazine called The Rumpus. And all of a sudden, I just didn't have as much time to like, oh, uh, you know, and you get a couple of asks. And then eventually, I'm like, oh, wait, maybe I don't do this anymore. And this is true of Free Burma Rangers, too, not to equate these two extremely. One's a Christian organization. One's a porn company. But with both of them, I think there was a part of me that always thought I would come back. But I just, I never did. I kept moving forward.
0: When you were working at the Rumpus, you helped sculpt and sharpen pieces by authors, including Cheryl Strayed and Saeed Jones and my wife Roxane Gay. And you've been described as having an innate, almost indescribable ability to know what reads well on the page. How did you hone that? Where did you get that quote? Well, I don't have footnotes at the moment, <laughs> but I can send you a link. <laughs> okay, okay,
1: uh, that's incredibly kind. So I do have I, I have what I call progressive views on grammar. I didn't go to school for any of this stuff. I cannot tell you a comma splice. Like I, I, I'm not perfect at, at that. I don't know the terminology. But what I do know is if you read something out loud, you can tell if it hits your ear right or if it hits your ear wrong. And so that is what I brought to The Rumpus. And I want to be very clear. When I say I help, like sharpen is the, a perfect word for it. I was not making – like I was working with such talented people. They were such good writers. They were turning in such beautiful, heartfelt well-written pieces, but I could always read it out loud and I would always either write an email back or maybe get on the phone and it would always just be like, hey, hey, this one sentence, I don't know if it's doing exactly what you want it to do. And that's what gave me that. I didn't go to school for any, but that's when I learned I could do that to other people's work. Maybe I could do it to my own. So that's how I write now. I create a giant pile of words and sentences and then I just read it out loud over and over and over again until all of it hits my ear right.
0: You moved back to New York and began working at BuzzFeed. Uh, You became the site's first editor of BuzzFeed Books Mm -hmm. and co-hosted BuzzFeed News' morning show AM to DM with, again, the great Saeed Jones. Did you really come back for the job or did you come back for your family?
1: I mean, a real fun answer is Saeed left San Francisco. He actually lived out there for a year. We'd we'd started this new friendship, and we said this very heartfelt goodbye. And then six months later, I was living in New York. So there's one way to look at it, in which I came to New York for Saeed Jones because I love him so much. Um, The job was, of course, what made me think, like I could afford it and, and, and gave me the opportunity. But 100%, the actual answer is, I had been estranged from my family for almost 10 years. But my brother and his wife were having a kid. My sister was very soon to have a kid with her husband. I had turned 30, and I realized that I was already going to be the weird uncle. I'm (laughs) always going to be the weird uncle. I didn't want to be the weird uncle who lived 3,000 miles away. And I also think at that point, having gotten through my 20s, I was able to understand the difficulties that my parents had suffered themselves in a new light. And so I was drawn back to the East Coast to say, let's give this another shot. I loved California, I loved the West Coast, but I wanted to give my family a chance and that was that was the real reason I came back
0: East. During COVID, you started to leave your apartment in Brooklyn just to walk. Uh, You began to explore New York City and realized that you'd taken the city for granted a little bit. Mm -hmm. Eventually, your walk stretched to two a day in the morning and the evening. You then set up an ambitious goal of walking 20,000 steps per day. (laughs) That's like 10 miles. (laughs) Um, What provoked you to do this?
1: As we've been talking about, sometimes you look back on a time in your life and you can see it for what it is. That was a break in my mental health. (laughs) (laughs) I was going through it, but I loved it. And that's the truth. I immediately saw health benefits. I just want to quote this wonderful writer who I love, Garnett. He talks about moving through the world at a human pace. And for him, he's always very careful to say, it doesn't just have to be walking, there's many different ways to move through the world at a human pace. But for me, it very much was, I discovered it through walking. Leaving your phone in your pocket, not having earbuds, moving through the world at a human pace. And I found so much comfort in exploring New York City, in just putting one foot in front of the other, in finding a life that wasn't obsessed with everything going on in the world, especially during that time, but just focusing on where I am in the moment, and walking does that for me. I think we are all built to move through the world at a human pace, and I think when we get caught up in many different aspects of the world now, it's so easy to get dis- disconnected from that. So I started walking 20,000 steps a day. I wrote about it for The Guardian. And that's when I saw the biggest reaction to anything I'd ever yeah. written in my entire yeah.
0: life. Absolutely.
1: And you realize that that's so many people are, are interested in just figuring out the simple way of being, and I've been obsessed with it ever since.
0: So this success of the article sort of went viral, mm-hmm. um, inspired you to launch a weekly newsletter mm-hmm. titled, Walk It Off. <laughs> um, what do you write about?
1: So I love to interview people. I love to basically take a friend for a walk, um, an artist that I respect. But I, to be honest, I'm actually hoping to like reach out to other different folks working in other different industries and i find the conversation that comes from a walk is so freewheeling and so intimate um to be walking with somebody and then just quietly record the conversation and then i'll take it home and i'll transcribe it so some people are like oh should it, it should be a podcast I'm like no i really love then kind of taking what was said and putting it almost on a pedestal, shining it. That same with sharpening it, the way you were talking about my editing. It's, it's my way of finding exactly the gems in this, this conversation, and then I present them to the reader, and I love doing it.
0: It's a great newsletter. I love getting it. Thank you. You recently got another book deal, this time from Knopf. Mm-hmm. The book is titled American Dionysus. Mm-hmm. And this is the description I gleaned from Publisher's Marketplace. (laughs) I tried to get more information out from Roxanne, but she said, just ask Isaac yourself. (laughs) Um, So this this is the description. The author walks in the literal footsteps of John Chapman, better known as Johnny Appleseed, and speaks with the communities of people he meets along the way as he seeks to better understand American legends, both explicit and implicit, and dares to imagine more expansive possibilities for community, faith, and our shared sense of home. Mm -hmm. So where have you been walking?
1: Well, so I'm going to share this with you. I haven't shared anybody, but like you know, I care about— First lines, yes. And so, um, the first line of this book is, "I've been drinking a bit less and praying a lot more than I used to." And it opens with me hiding from uh, basically—they're called bulls, but security guards—at a train station because I'd been walking along this uh, these train tracks. What I what I do throughout the book is I. Try to walk where John Chapman himself walked, which he was born in Lemonster, Massachusetts, and he makes his way through Western Pennsylvania, all around Ohio, and eventually ends up in Fort Wayne, Indiana, near where he dies. I love Johnny Appleseed so much for so many different reasons, and I could go on and on and on about them. Well, we'll get you
0: back on the show for that book too, but tell us a few.
1: I'll try to be quick. What you need to know about him is one, he was a missionary of a very interesting form of Christianity at that time called Swedenborgism, which was this almost philosopher madman from Scandinavia. And so he gets really into uh, his belief and his faith and not harming creatures. That's like one of his number one things. So he will never ride a horse. He loves all animals. There's a real St. Francis vibe to him. So I love that about him. I also love that he's an American legend. Most people, when I say Johnny Appleseed, they say, oh, like Paul Bunyan? He's not a real guy. But he was. <laughs> he was a real guy who was born during the Revolutionary War. His father was a Minuteman, like a soldier. So there's that Massachusetts background that I'm grounded to. But the thing that I really love about him, his spirituality, of course, um, but it's more that he was... A bit of a madman, he's planting these trees. the 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 The, the legend of him is just throwing seeds willy-nilly. No, it takes a lot to start an apple orchard. Oh
0: my gosh! So yes. he would
1: start them, but then he'd leave. When he planted those apple seeds, at one point he has paperwork. He loses like half of Ohio, but he doesn't care. He's not interested in money, even though he's acquiring all this land. He doesn't own a, own a home. He lives off of the kindness of strangers, even though he doesn't really need to. He sleeps in the woods. And then the last thing that really sealed the deal for me was when you're raised, um, in Massachusetts especially, you get educated about him. Oh, it's apple pies for the settlers, for, the, for um, apple tarts, or, or all these different apples. Oh, it's food. It wasn't. Michael Pollan talks about this in his wonderful book, Botany for Desire. It was for apple cider and apple jack. It was alcohol. So he's kind of this wandering, boozy, American saint. But I knew I'm not Ron Chernow. I'm not going to be able to write the biography on this guy. In fact, a guy named Means did a great job in 2012. But what I can do is I can walk where he walked and talk to the people that live there now and try and combine this, this wrestling that I'm having with my faith And this idea of what makes an American legend. And then the middle part, which I love, is my mom reads Dirtback. My mom reads the book. And she's very loving and and beautiful, kind response. But one of the things she said was, where are all the canoe trips? (laughs) We camped a lot. Where's all the camp? Where's chapter three, the fun camping bits? And, well, that's going to be in this book now. It's about how my parents were such outdoorsy people, and at the time, I really kind of, sh- you know, shrunk away from it. But as I come into middle age myself, I find myself drawn to the exact same things they were.
0: I cannot wait to read it. When will it be out?
1: I've got to write it first. <laughs> no, 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 um, no. We are. We do have a. We have a deadline, and um, the hope is fall of twenty twenty five. I spent this entire year in Ohio, in Indiana, I rafted the allegheny i've walked through far too many miles of uh highway than i'd care to admit but i spent this whole year out in the world doing it and now i'm gonna go put it all on paper
0: oh we can't wait to read it isaac fitzgerald thank you so much for making so much work that matters and thank you for joining me today on design Matters.
1: debbie thank you so much for having me it was an honor
0: Isaac Fitzgerald's book, Dirtbag Massachusetts, A Confessional, is now out in paperback. To read more about Isaac, you can go to isaacfitzgerald.net and sign up for his popular, wonderful newsletter, Walk It Off. You can also catch him on the Today Show talking about books. This is the 18th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
1: Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. The interviews are
0: usually recorded at the Masters in Branding Program at the School of Visual Arts in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The Editor-in-Chief of Design Matters
1: Media is
0: Emily Wyland.